HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to heritageradionetwork.org. Today's program has been brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards & Sons, third-generation cure masters producing the country's best dry-cured and aged hams, bacon, and sausage. For more information, visit surreyfarms.com. Good afternoon and welcome to Straight No Chaser on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and today we're going to be talking all about grass-fed beef with Lynn Curry. Lynn Curry is a professional cook and food writer whose work has appeared in Savar, the LA Times, Fine Cooking, and Kulinate.com, among other publications. She's a former vegetarian, but she has escaped from the dark side when she relocated from Seattle to Wallowa. Wallowa? Wallowa Valley in Oregon, an area rich in artisanal beef production. She joins us today in studio from uh, all the way from Oregon to discuss her new book, Pure Beef, An Essential Guide to Artisan Meat with Recipes for Every Cut. Thanks a lot for coming in. It's great to have you in the studio. I mean, I don't mind doing phoners, but it's really nice to have the person to look at and, you know, react to and stuff. Makes it a much easier program to run. So thanks for making the effort. You guys are here for a little tour? Yeah, I've been on the East Coast for a couple weeks, and I have another week here before we go back. And where else are you going to be going? I will be back in Boston for an event, uh-huh. and um, that will wrap it up a weekend on Cape Cod with my family, and then a flight nice. home. Oh, you said you were you're originally from New England, right? Yes, I am. Yeah. Are you from the Boston area? I am, yes. Yeah. Great area. I'm going to be going up there in a couple weeks myself. Anyway, you spent a whole year following the chain uh, of cattle from pasture to package in Oregon. Why don't you describe some of the production facilities you saw and uh, talk a little bit about the differences in practices that you observed in this kind of you know research part of doing the book? Absolutely. One of my goals in setting out to write the book was to trace the food chain, the food supply chain of meat, because it's really fragmented at one end and really concentrated at the other. And regardless of the type of beef you buy, pretty much all meat goes through four phases, basically. So there's the raising, there's the slaughter, there's the processing and the distribution. And the meat we know comes through the commodity system. Grass-fed beef as one of the types of artisanal meat, which I define as that meat that's produced by independent producers, not as the commodity product. 
Um, it's really outside of that system. So it's quite different how that occurs. First of all, the raising of it. Um, they spend the cattle, spend their entire lives on pasture. And that's quite different from when they were sold off at seven months old after weaning and then sent to, say, a backgrounder, which is a, another type of producer. And their job is basically to add gain to the calves so that then they can go into a feedlot. So ranchers now who are producing grass-fed beef have the cattle for their entire life and they're basically own them from beginning to end. That was the one thing. Then they have a job on their own to find a processing facility, a slaughtering facility and processing facility. And that is absolutely critical. And because they're not within the traditional supply chain, that is the biggest um, challenge for them. So I went to smaller processing facilities, including my own butcher, who is a state inspected, not USDA. I also visited a small USDA plant where they process about 40 cattle a day, which compared to 1,200 a day at the Tyson or plant. 4, or 4,000. Four, yes, it, it's mind-boggling. <laughs> yeah. um, and then other, so there are packagers and processors, so they'll take the larger cuts, of course, and cut them smaller into what we see. And then the distribution channels that can vary from, we've seen farmers markets to Whole Foods and how they flow back into sort of the standard retail chain from being outside that commodity system. That's an interesting uh, way of looking at it. Um, To go back just for a second, um, you said you started out by saying that all cattle start on pasture, right? And then some of them go to these stalkers or backgrounders, you called them. I've always called them stalkers, but that's okay. Or um, what do they call them? Feeders? Stalker feeder? Calf feeder. So it's called backgrounding. Aren't they they putting them on pasture as well? Yes, they are. So So they they stay on pasture until they go to a feedlot. They do. do. But they do get to travel around and that's not always so great for any animal. And the major point is that traditionally ranchers, the 750 to 800,000 small scale ranchers all across our country um, used to simply sell, not so simply, I should never say simply when we're talking about (laughs) agriculture, but they were cow-calf operators, which meant they produced a calf crop annually. And then they sold it through a live or video or internet auction. And then that was the end of it. And the fact that they're taking it into their own hands to produce the meat themselves is the most significant change. Right. I think that's what the whole, I don't know if you're familiar with the RCAF organization, which is kind of this renegade um, trade group that split off from National Cattlemen's Beef Association and the American Meat Institute, because for that very reason was that they were being crowded um, by the the, um, the large packers were buying up big herds and were depressing prices, essentially. And so these RCAF guys, and I can't unfortunately remember what the acronym stands for now, but you can Google them. And, and they're quite an interesting group because they, they, they are what you say. They're these, these ranchers that just were like fed up with the consolidation of the industry and they've been very active and very vocal in Congress and trying to change legislation that that sort of surrounds the whole you know grain inspection act and how much feed is allowed to cost and who gets subsidized for what and all that kind of stuff I mean they've they've really been making an effort to deconsolidate the industry so that there are more options for smaller smaller guys out there and it's the ranchers like that who are the innovators and yeah. I, you know the um Basically, the beef industry is not probably going to be innovating and making radical changes, and we'll see it from these independents who go out and take charge, basically. Yeah, the only thing they want to innovate is how to make a new muscle cut so that they can make more money on a carcass. I mean, I get, you know, we were talking earlier about meatyclays.com, and I, get, I not only read it online, but I also get a magazine which is very highly produced. 
and last month's issue, uh, or I guess it was this month's issue, Tony Mata, Tony the Tiger Mata, the, the meat scientist who is like teasing out new cuts for. <laughs> It was surreal. If you're not in the industry, it's really surreal. Um, so when you were studying up on the grass-fed beef and these protocols that these ranchers are using that are maybe a little different from what other ones, what, what were the differences that made such an impact on you in terms of wanting to really delve deeper into the whole grass-fed movement and, and you know write an entire cookbook about how to cook that kind of meat? <laughs> Talk about a masochist, girl. <laughs> The big aha for me was recognizing that cows on grass produce muscle very well. They're naturally designed to do that. But muscle becomes meat through human intervention at all those steps in the production system that I described. So every, you know, from the raising to the slaughter, yeah. to the processing, to the butchering, to the handling, dry aging, not dry aging to the consumer and how they cook that piece of meat. Every step in that supply chain determines the quality, which is why I think of it as an artisanal product. Yes, we did commodify it, but when it's done well on grass, it can become something completely different and extraordinary. Well, that makes me, that leads me right to my next question, which is what about the flavor differences between grass-fed and commodity beef? What did you find? I find, so I should explain that I was not a meat eater when I came to grass-fed. I know, so sad. Think of all the opportunity you've wasted being a vegetarian. It's tragic. (laughs) And, you know, I I have to confess, it wasn't because I was an ethical vegetarian. I did not like the taste of meat. So I'm probably a bad person to ask. I really had an experience tasting game. And then from there, I really liked game. I could taste the grasses, the minerality. There were mushroomy qualities that you know, mysterious umami that we like to talk about. And when I first tasted some grass-fed beef that was raised by a rancher who at the time had five head, a rangeland ecologist who was experimenting with a light-footed, small-framed breed on the native grasses, it had all those qualities that I loved, an intense, meaty flavor. Um, But many people will disagree. I had a very distinguished and experienced food lover come up to me at the Marin Farmer's Market two weeks ago and said, you can't tell me that grass-fed is better than corn-fed. And I don't purport to tell anybody what they should like. I wanted to provide the information, and then you make the decision yourself about what you like. But more and more, even if you prefer a grain-finished meat, there are options that are alternative to the commodity meat. Sure. I mean, you can be you can be an organic farmer and finish your cattle on grain. You know, Absolutely. you can do whatever you want if you're controlling the whole supply chain, um, which is the beauty of being a small scale farmer. Um, what about I know that a lot of people talk about the health benefits of grass fed versus commodity fed. And let's talk first just a second about that, because finishing with grain brings in that sort of marbling that Americans have grown to love. And it makes the meat really supposedly very juicy. And I guess it does. Um, and it certainly tenderizes it. Uh, and it gives you a little more margin for error if you're cooking it. Um, but it also brings with it some problems. Um, the fat looks completely different. And so what, t- tell us a little bit about that, because you had a really nice little uh, essay about the health issues. I do want to back up for a minute, because some of the differences in, in sure. the texture and composition of the corn fed, I find it watery and um, just much shall I say, blander in flavor. And that has a lot to do with the feeding regimen. I like the mineral flavors of the grasses. So 
I like to look at the larger view. We talk a lot about micronutrients, and we've heard a lot about the ratio of omega-3 to omega-6 as in grass-fed, the CLA, and... Um, the, you know, the cancer-fighting properties, the antioxidants and the precursors to vitamin A and E, and all that's great, but I prefer to look at it a little more holistically and say, these again, these herbivores that digest grasses that we can't. So there's all this grassland. Five million hectares of grasslands are available for them to convert into a food. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, <clears throat> excuse me. Can you just remind me of the question? Sure. Uh, we were just talking about the health issues uh, surrounding, like, when, when an animal goes from pasture to grain, you know, it actually literally alters the composition of the fat. So the ways in which that that changes. And all, and to just back up for a second about what you said just now, which I thought was really interesting, we were talking about how animals digest. They're built to digest. They have the four stomachs. They're built to digest uh, pasture in a way that is very specific to cattle. And when we change that feed, something happens. That's the point I wanted to get to. So we were. Ta- I got lost <laughs> in the micronutrient. You, <laughs> you know, that's kind of like a rabbit warren of micronutrients yeah. that I don't know you know, has, has done us great benefit overall, but it is fascinating. And what I liked the most in terms of the studies I looked at was when animals, cattle are transitioned or put on grain from grass, those nutritional benefits begin to wane pretty immediately. Like within days, the graphs show declining, for example, omega-3s pretty immediately. And we see the nutritional benefits in the fat on a grass-fed animal. So I think you were referring to where I look at two different pieces of meat and describe those differences. And I'm doing that in some of my appearances. And it's the biggest aha for people when we look at the color difference of the muscle, the marbling, the butter-colored fat that you can actually see. That's the beta-carotene that we do want to consume. Now, it looks weird, and we have to sort of adjust what we're used to seeing. One more point, you mentioned marbling. And this is a really interesting new area because we've believed that it's the feed and sort of giving them that, you know, great high carb diet at the end of their life that makes marbling. And that's true to a certain extent. Certainly grass fed beef are leaner overall, but they're finding that it's genetics that can play as much of a role in instilling marbling in the muscle as feed. And so basically the cutting edge grass fed producers and breeders are looking for breeds and that will actually produce more marbling. So we'll, I think we'll start to see changes over time. So it won't be such an Angus-driven industry, because right now they love Black Angus because Black Angus marbles up so well on corn. A lot of producers still are producing Angus. Angus is still a very adaptable breed. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the things about grass-fed that's different, too, is we need to find breeds that are adapted to the ecosystem in which they live, and that's not the same across the country. Right. Not very interesting. Lynn, we have to take a short 30-second break for a sponsor drop, and uh, we'll be right back with Lynn Curry, the author of Pure Beef. Stay tuned. Sing the Zombie Song by BC Bob. The following program was sponsored by S. Wallace Edwards and Sons. Summertime is not the only time when barbecue is welcome. At S. Wallace Edwards and Sons, Sam Edwards has been working his magic on ribs, briskets, pit-cooked pulled pork, and much, much more. Add a few of their sides and the party is complete. Entertaining has never been so easy. To order, go to virginiatraditions.com. 
We're back. Uh, this is Street No Chaser on the Heritage Radio Network. We're broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn. 261 Moore Street. Brunch is being served, so uh, feel free to come on down. It's great, great brunch and a great atmosphere. Um, our show was sponsored today by S. Wallace Edwards & Son. I just want to say thank you to my friend Sam Edwards. And we're back on the show with Lynn Curry, the author of Pure Beef. We're talking about grass-fed beef, what makes it good, and what makes it different. Um, so, Lynn, let's, let's talk... I I wanted to talk just a little bit more about the labeling and classifications because you do go into that and to a certain extent and and it's kind of confusing i think for consumers to know like if something says organic or natural or grass-fed grass you know like what are there's so many terms now around even if you're buying it from a you know upscale market like whole foods or at a farmer's market it can be definitely a challenge to figure it out Man, oh man, is it. I was in a San Francisco Whole Foods buying some meat to, I like to prepare a little snack when I'm doing my appearances. Mm -hmm. I stood in front of that meat counter. I have published a cookbook on beef and I stood there (laughs) bewildered. Now, I love that. That's not very reassuring, but I hope it gives people a sense that it is confusing. And right now we're in a phase where more labels, more brands are coming onto the market. So kind of expect to be stumped to a certain extent. But I can also tell you that there are a few ways that you kind of decode the labeling. First of all, you know, the USDA organic label is the legal definition of grass-fed and or and organic and so you can as much as you want to you know you can trust in that for sure there are also um yeah that would be a problem actually for me but having just learned i'll just take it aside but on the way down here this morning the fda has just been uh, busted for surveillance of some of their scientists because they're coming out and saying they're whistleblowers and they they're saying things that the fda doesn't want them to say so now there's like this whole scandal that's erupting at fda that's the food and drug administration oh, that's great. well i have out. an alternative for yeah. you then and i write about this quite a bit because it's the third party certification process. So the American Grass-Fed Association, Food Alliance, American Welfare Approved are a few examples of organizations that are really seeking to authenticate any claim that a producer is making. Of course, the third way is through your farmer's market connection or a local connection, knowing a rancher. And it's not enough, I think, to ask the question, is it grass-fed? Because as I spoke about earlier in the program, you can say any beef is grass-fed. But the question would be, how was this meat raised and where was it processed? And that way you can get the answer to the real question that we want to know. Yeah, which is whether or not this is what I think it is. Or are you just pulling the wool over my eyes, blowing smoke? I hate to say it's happening. But and buyer beware, but we we do need to be skeptics to a certain extent, and it's just very easy to say yes, it's grass fed, um, and to really know what that means. Yeah, because I mean, as we said earlier, all beef is grass starts out grass fed. It's what happens at the at the very end of their last three four months of their lives. In the case of you make the point also that in the case of commodity beef, they muscle up a lot faster on that um, on the corn diet, so they'll be younger at slaughter. And this is the big case for grain finish is that the animal gets to market weight faster and that's why people want that I mean producers want that a lot of it has to do with the flavors that people are used to I've had people I've had chefs tell me that they much prefer like Tom Colicchio told me he loves corn fed corn finished beef 
much I'm prefers so it. I'm so not shocked. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's uh, there's a reason why we like it. There's a reason why it's been so successful. Now, you would not have written this book if there weren't something very different about how you cook grass-fed beef. So can you tell us a little bit about the different techniques you use or what makes it so different from commodity beef in terms of cooking it? Sure. The real impetus to writing the book, recognizing that where I lived, what I'd witnessed living among ranchers, what I knew about cooking it might have a larger audience than my friends and family who were asking me for cooking advice for their short ribs. And it really came from reading widespread information basically on the internet, about grass-fed beef cooking 30% faster and don't cook it over high heat and all these sort of fear-based, I guess, advice that did not ring true for me in my experience at all. So I come from a fine dining background. We always cook proteins over high heat. You want browning. That is the basics of great-tasting meat good seasoning and good browning. So I really started to look harder at the techniques and wanting to share with people the connection between the cut you choose and the appropriate cooking technique. So if you have a tender cut, naturally tender, rib steak, strip loin, go ahead, cook it over high heat. And how to get the correct temperature so that you don't cook it and make it dry and tough, which is what grass-fed got a reputation for being. Most definitely. Yeah, I think people really got turned off to it uh, because of that. And even at uh, Heritage Foods, I, you know, when people buy grass-fed beef, we often put on a, the end of like the catalog copy or something like that. It'll say, you know, remember, you know, don't overcook this product or, you know, low and slow if you're going to braise it or something like that. So there's, there's definitely something different about the way it cooks up because it has less, less uh, fat content within the muscle than conventionally raised beef does. Yeah, and anyone can learn to cook grass-fed beef. Yeah. And it's not that the techniques are different. They're traditional techniques. Right. But uh, what I say, it requires more attentive cooking. I don't mm-hmm. put a burger on the grill and walk away. I'm always <laughs> attentive to the timing. I bring my cocktail to the grill. I don't go the other direction. And leaner meat has less moisture. I talked about that a little bit before. Less water holding capacity in meat science terms. And so we need to preserve the moisture through quicker cooking. Um, And if you want to cook it beyond medium rare, then you to either take it off the heat or cook, finish it over very low heat. Interesting. Good Good to know. That's a nice little technique. Um, You had a beef tasting scoring sheet which I loved I thought that was great that did you go back to talking about like the minerality and the mushrooms and the this and the that you had like all these different flavor notes that you've observed in grass-fed beef so how did you like develop that like why did you do that why did you include that in your book I wanted to provide a book that had information for people but not my opinion of what you should eat Mm -hmm. I feel like or how you should respond to it Right. Everyone's the expert of their own taste. So like Tom Colicchio, if he likes corn fed, all the more power to you. But let's really, maybe we should put that to the test a little bit because, you know, it's widely known that we like what's familiar. So if we wanted to make a change, we wanted to explore some other beef options because we're not satisfied with the conventional beef for a host of reasons, then here was a tool that you could use. It's also really fun and eye-opening to challenge your taste buds to decode differences. And not in that whiny, snobby way about, you know, differentiating, but simply to know which you like better. You don't have to be able to name the flavors, but if you do a side-by-side tasting like this one I developed with a sensory scientist out of Oregon State University, then you can definitively say, I like corn-finished beef better without just it being out of habit or familiarity. Would you also be able to use the same test, like say you were able to taste different breeds? 
I actually really suggest that because that is so fun. I have a friend who raises a heritage breed called Corienti, mm-hmm. and we can do side by side with an Angus Hereford cross and see if we can determine the differences in flavor. I think it's sort of a fun party trick if you're into this sort of thing. Yeah, I think it sounds like a lot of fun. I mean, I remember doing it years ago, buying some, I got some really great steaks from a company here in New York called De Braga and Spittler that supply a lot of restaurants. And uh, they gave me a Wagyu steak and a... Um, and a conventional like New York strip. And then I went to the farmer's market and bought a couple of grass-fed steaks. And we grilled them up and did a taste test that way. And it was really, it was fascinating. And it was also really interesting. And there was a very striking uh, difference. So um, one of the things that you talked about was cooking like a butcher. What do you mean by cooking like a butcher? We're really used to buying meats in very small pieces. And that hasn't allowed us to either appreciate or have a, maybe a bigger perspective on the whole animal in terms of learning what the cuts are and what we should do with them. So I hung around quite a bit with my butcher, Kevin Silvera. He has a small meat He looks like a plate. rock star. You have a photo of him in the book. I loved him. He is a rock star. Yeah. He did a butchery class with me in Portland, and he just tells it like it is. And he knows the meat inside and out. Yeah. He also appreciates it from a sense of what is this cut? What are the characteristics? of this cut and how will I use it? It's also appreciating that every cut can be cooked in a number of different ways once you understand. Can it be hot and fast or low and slow? Right. And combination cooking methods. Um, Really recognizing the difference between value, I should say, and price. You know, I love when butchers scoff about the tenderloin. You know, everyone loves their filet mignon, but it's one of the you know least tasty cuts on the cow and the most expensive. So, what can we do with some of the other cuts that are more prevalent, less expensive, right? And I find more interesting to cook. Yeah, definitely. I'd much rather make a stew or a braise than grill a steak. I mean, you know, I think that's I don't know. Not that I don't love steak, but still. Um, so I liked uh, another thing I liked about the the uh, cookbook part of the of the um, you know the recipe part of the cookbook was the globe trotting. You went all over the world. I mean, now I thought that was great because not I mean we're the only country that kind of really focused so exclusively on the middle meats, which is what the steaks are basically. Um, so in order to cook all of the other cuts, which you, you really did have to go to other cuisines in order to find suitable processes, right? Or suitable techniques? I'd love to be known for being so noble. It initially came from a more selfish reason in that I live a town in a town of a thousand people in the mountains of eastern Oregon, and we don't have a lot of takeout, as you can imagine. So this rep... <laughs> <laughs> You're still digesting the town of a thousand people in yeah. the mountains of eastern Oregon. <laughs> I grew up in a small town, but not that small. <laughs> I like variety. I love international flavors. So part of this represents the way I cook for myself and my family. I cook nearly all of my meals uh, for us. And I just represented that variety of flavor. It also, as you said, it's absolutely true. Other cuisines served as great models for different ways to handle meat. And if anything, my book isn't simply a collection of recipes, but it elucidates all of the techniques you can use with each cut of beef. I really wanted to make sure that each recipe served as an example of a cooking technique and also offered alternative cuts if you can't happen to find the one suggested in the main recipe. Yeah, that was a very nice feature, actually. I, I appreciated that. You had some great recipes. I mean, I, I was like, you sh- I'm very picky about cookbooks, having a culinary background of my own. And so when I look at a cookbook, if I'm going to buy it, which I rarely do anymore, but I only buy a recipe book if there's five recipes or more that I actually want to eat. 
And most of the time, I don't find that. So your, your book had a lot of good stuff in it, I thought. Thank you. Um, what was your favorite recipe in the book? I have to say... My favorite, oh, one recipe? I have to pick one baby. No, um, you can pick a I'm going to hedge and talk about a little bit about <laughs> the ground beef chapter, which I put as the first chapter in the oh, book yeah, thanks. for Let's a couple reasons. About that. One yeah. is that when ranchers need to sell basically their meat and make a living, they can't just sell steaks. Right. They need to sell the whole animal. And a third of every carcass ends up as ground meat. Now, we don't have some pretty pictures of ground meat in this country today, but when you're buying from Are you the referring source, to pink slime? I wouldn't dare to bring up that topic. Oh, I think you should absolutely bring it up. Well, the, the beauty of when you're purchasing meat in this manner is that those are absolutely non-issues. Right. Ground meat is simply that. Yeah. And I had a complete reawakening with ground beef. Who cares about ground beef, I initially thought. Well, when I had like 30 pounds of it in my freezer, I suddenly had to care. I didn't want to cook burgers every night. And I had this great experience exploring all the cooking techniques. Ground beef, you actually, you can use every single cooking technique there is with ground beef. Um, and so I got to explore in that chapter, you know, everything from a beef ravioli, ravioli or bolognese sauce to... You did um, picadillo, one of my favorites. Yes, I did. Um, and the Thai burger wraps, which, you know, gluten-free oh, recipe. Yeah, right. That and, was a very cool recipe. An all-beef meatloaf and a miso-glazed meatloaf. Again, just you exploring You made a beef flavors. salami. At the end of the book, you have a little bit of charcuterie. And you don't typically think of beef as something that lends itself to any kind of charcuterie. But I thought that was an interesting recipe, too. That was my other chapter I was going to bring up at the end. So the trim that conventionally ends up as ground beef or LFTB, otherwise known as pink slime, Mm -hmm. um, when you get it directly, you can use that to make lunch meats. And it's really fun. I have a very simple recipe for summer sausage you can make with ground beef or meat you grind yourself. And there you have it to slice and serve for your cocktail party or put in your kids lunch absolutely sounds great so now you're in new york you're in the east coast for just another week and you have one more appearance that'll be i'm at rizzoli at 5 30 on tuesday night on 57th oh excellent that's a beautiful bookstore too yeah are you going to cook any um beef heart or anything for that (laughs) (laughs) do you have a source for the beef heart locally (laughs) um i might be able to hook you up (laughs) we actually have a kitchen potentially we could talk about that I'm also doing a cooking demonstration, and I'll be doing a side-by-side beef tasting oh, of excellent. conventional and grass-fed up at Glenwood Farm in Cold Spring, New York. Oh, I know Glenwood. That's, that's a beautiful place. Oh, how fun. I'm really excited. If you've never been to Glenwood, you will really enjoy it. It's a gorgeous facility. Really fantastic. Um, that's about it for us, folks, for this week. Thank you very much for joining us today with my author, Lynn Curry, and her book, Pure Beef. Next week, we have Anthony Butler from St. John's Bread and Life. We'll be in, he'll be in to discuss food pantries, the farm bill, and much, much more. Tony is a wicked smart guy. So thanks a lot for tuning in and thanks so much to my sponsor, Sam Edwards, and we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our programs archived on our website or by searching iTunes for Heritage Radio Network. You can find us on Facebook, 
or follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website. Thanks for listening.